Hi, I'm Lisa Costabier. I'm a naturopath in Sydney, Australia, and also a lecturer and clinical supervisor at Torrens University and Endeavour College of Natural Health. I'm really passionate about women's health and autoimmunity, and I'm also excited to announce that I'm now part of the FX Medicine Ambassador Team. I can't wait to share some fascinating conversations with some of the most inspiring leaders in our profession. I've already started planning and recording my first interviews, and I can't wait to share them with you in 2023. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Emma Sutherland, a Sydney-based naturopath and one of the new hosts of the show. Joining us on the line today is Leah Heckman, who many of you will recognise as a powerhouse of knowledge in the natural health sector. Leah specialises in fertility, pregnancy and reproductive health for men and women. She's a university lecturer, keynote speaker, author, educator, and mentor to her peers. She's currently completing her PhD through the School of Women's and Children's Health at the University of New South Wales, and is the author of Clinical Naturopathic Medicine and Advanced Clinical Natural Medicine. Welcome to FX Medicine, Leah. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me, Emma. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, I am so excited to be talking with you today, and I would love to ask you some questions about your story. And we all know that, you know, you're a rock star in our industry. Let's dive into the layer story. I would mm -hmm. really love to know what drew you into studying naturopathy in the first place. So I was really sick as a kid. Um, I was really sick in probably from about the age of eight or nine, um, weird and wonderful things and mm. hospital admissions and all sorts of exciting things. And then, of course, there's the endo and then there's all sorts of other fun stuff that happened after that. And technically I was told I had chronic fatigue for 14 years, but, you know, through the naturopathic lens we look at it and we know that there's lots of other reasons for it. It's just a banner diagnosis. Mm. Um, but, like, I missed a whole year of school in year 10 and, I didn't end up finishing year 12 because I was too sick and I was always going to study medicine. I mean, from the age of two, I was the kid that, you know, would put my hands on people's heads and take <laughs> their headache away, you know, like I was the nurse if someone was sick and I would give them healings. I didn't know what I was doing, but, you know, I'd, I'd be giving them energy and I'd get sick and sit in the corner afterwards and, yeah. and that's probably why I got sick. I mean, I was such a sensitive kid and so intuitive and psychic and all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and then I started studying naturopathy because my my health always improved with my clinicians and I had an amazing integrative doctor mm. that I worked with from the age of 14 um, and he was such a mentor to me and he ended up being a clinical mentor as well. Mm. And because I couldn't finish school, I thought, all right, well, I can't study medicine yet, mm. so let's start studying naturopathy because the idea was do medicine and then do 
naturopathy subjects after um, and it flipped on me. Mm. And then what a blessing that it did. Yeah. Um, I think I, I wouldn't have been who I am as a clinician. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I still think about studying medicine and <sighs> I think when I don't have a six and an eight-year-old, I'll look at it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's it's so wonderful when you look back at it and you understand that the timing of everything has such intention and such magic behind it mm. and it guides you to where you're meant to be. So I'm yeah. really grateful for it now. Yeah. You know, I love that you have really brought that energetic side of things, you know, as you were intuitive as a child, because I remember when I first met you uh, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about it this morning, it was actually in the year 2000, it was my second year of my Mm. naturopathic studies and you taught us bushflowers or bark flowers, no bark flowers. I remember the class, I remember the class. And it was it was just such a beautiful way to learn because you brought the theory, but then you brought it all to life with the energy side of things. And I mm. love that that comes from such a personal experience. Mm. I mean, I was, <laughs> it's crazy when I look back at it now. And I think so much of my personality is a bit funny, but like I was teaching energetic healing at 16. Amazing. Like I was in meditation and energy classes from God knows when. And God bless my parents for letting me do all this, by the way. <laughs> but, I mean, I was literally teaching meditation and energetic healing at 16 and 17. I was teaching classes at 21 because I thought I could because I'd already started it. And this was because I'd, I'd had my astrology read and I knew that my Saturn return was in Leo. So mm. I knew I had to tackle all my Leo stuff. Mm. So I thought, okay, I better start teaching I mean, as 21 for crying out loud when I taught you. Like, it's ridiculous when I think about it now. But And the fact that I had something of value to say, I don't know. I mean, I look back at it now and I cringe, as everyone does. But, I mean, it's just, it's diabolical when I look at it. I was 24 when I spoke to the publisher. Like, when I, when I approached Elsevier, I was 24 and I said to them, I'm being approached to write courses from everybody. Mm. We have to write this as a textbook. Who does this at 24? Well, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's, it is. It is quite astounding. And, you know, did you actively seek to become a thought leader in our industry or is that something that's just organically happened? Or No, it's purely organic. Right. And, and the thing is, is that it was never my intention to be a leader from an ego perspective. It was never like, I want to be the best at what I can be sort of thing. Mm. Because, I mean, I've got more, you know, imposter syndrome than the next person. Mm -hmm. But it's just this whole thing of, for me, it was, I have to learn more. And every time I learn, I have to share that. And so that's, that's been my driving force. And I've been so blessed. Like, I was thinking about it this morning before we spoke, and I was like, I've never delved into marketing. I've never delved into anything like that. And I remember having a chat at the ripe old age of 22 at my second clinical practice space where I was sharing a space with a nurse, naturopath, David Kiesiger. And he said to me, never market yourself, just share information. And it always stuck with me. Mm. And from that point on, I was just sharing info. And so the more I learned, the more I shared. And obviously the biggest driver for me was fix my own health. So I had to learn more to understand it. So then I could understand people. So then I could teach others. And Mm. when I taught it, I understood it from many dimensions. So then I could share it in other ways and help more people. And it's just a cycle for me. Yeah. And I think that authenticity shines through and, and patients can feel it. People can feel it people reading your book can feel it. It's the authenticity that really does shine through. 
But what happens on days when you're feeling really exhausted and you've got a busy clinic day? How do you how do you manage that energy? It's funny. I was with a patient last night. Yeah, so I started at 6.30 in the morning. It's 8.15 and I do really big weeks when it's school holidays so I can have a whole week off with my kids mm. for the next week. And I'm there and my last patient is a woman and, you know, postpartum depression, mental health history, and we have a conversation and I'm, I'm like, you know, it's the end of, oh, God, a really full day, a really full week, and I know it's my last patient for the week. And I'm there and I'm like, I'm really exhausted. And we have the consult and the consult's fine. And I, I would still think that, you know, whenever I see a patient, I always ask myself, would I see myself? Was that a value for someone? Mm. Did I give them what they deserve? And it hung up from her and it was all fine or whatever. And then I called her back 15 minutes later and I said, I actually didn't say everything that you needed to hear. And we had another 20-minute conversation where I actually talked to her about really deepening her connection with her daughter and using that to motivate herself out of what was going through. And and it really took a lot of extra energy from me. Mm. But of course, when I hung up from her, I was energized because it was the truth. And it was, it was the deep connection between both of us. And it was the human connection. And, you know, as clinicians, we do get burnt out and we do get exhausted, but it's those inspiring, deep, enriching connection moments that energize us. Yeah, I would have to agree, uh, you know, with that clinical experience myself, that in that yeah. in that moment, you feel an enormous sense of peace and energy coming through yeah. you. And it is yeah. a beautiful experience. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's something that I think every graduate should know is ahead of them in their clinical yeah. path, that those moments really are just incredible. And it's the reason why you wake up and do what you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I still think, you know, like, I, you know, I've got three different health appointments for myself today. One was with the vet for my dogs, but she treats the humans when, when you see her and I, like, you know, and so I'm, I'm getting myself caring. And I think it's really important that, you know, I always do that because mm. we burn out otherwise, but that, you know, I mean, God, what we do we could, you know, I've always joked with friends and colleagues and students, you know, I could work at Woolworths, <laughs> but it wouldn't, it wouldn't enrich me in the same way. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and that, that gift of giving is something that does come full circle. Um, Absolutely. But when you were a, a new graduate, if you can kind of cast your mind back to being a new graduate, how mm. did you go from being in that position to then having a highly successful clinical practice? You know, were there any sort of cornerstones or landmarks along the way that you can highlight for us that could inspire some new grads? The biggest thing for me has always been identifying doors. So my personality hates feeling closed in, locked in, so that, that's, that's just a part of my makeup. But for me, I found naturopathy limiting at certain points. Mm. I found, um, you know, our tools and what I was taught limiting. And so throughout my career, what I've always done is if I ever feel dead with it or uninspired or flattened, I literally will pull it all apart, learn something new, and then recreate what is my new truth. Right. Um, it doesn't get pulled apart as much anymore. But, like, I remember when I started my master's, I remember sitting in that first class of that reproductive master's and just going, I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, what have I been doing until this point? I know absolutely nothing. And that course was 
was so inspiring for me in so many different ways because it pulled it apart and challenged me to go, what is my real truth through a naturopathic lens? How can I create a new truth? Um, and what can I do to actually take my new learning and create something that will contribute more meaningfully? And so that's always been the way with which I do it. I find doors. And it's not to say that the new graduate, you know, one of the worst things I think new graduates do is they just keep learning and they never integrate it. Yeah. But it's about remembering the rhythm of integration versus new learning and then integrate and recalibrate and then more learning. But just keep finding doors, keep finding inspiration, keep looking for new ways to help support the people that you want to work with because mm. you'll always have new challenges. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that's the best growth model we have as clinicians because it, it, it feeds into everything else, you know. It naturally generates success because it makes you keep moving. It makes you ahead of what's happening collectively. Mm. It um, helps you stay abreast of everything new and how to help people. But I think if you get stuck in a protocol-driven marketing model, you know, that sort of thing, that's where you die as a clinician and you really can't help anyone. Yeah. Look, there's so many parts of that that I would agree with. I definitely think the more that you study, the less you realise you actually know. And that oh, can yes. <laughs> be completely overwhelming when you've already been in clinical practice for a year or two. And then you think, wow, what did I learn in college? I feel like I've learned nothing. But the process of unpacking what you've learned, p dropping in new information and new insights and then repackaging it, to me means mm. that, you know, to be a successful clinician, you have to be open to thinking differently about things and you have to be open exactly. to challenging what you've been taught and challenging the way that you do things. And I think that Absolutely. behavioural flexibility and that mental agility are skills that are so important for practitioners. They really mm -hmm. are important. If we need to keep a dynamic practice that keeps us energised, we need to be able to do that. Mm. And I think it's also, I mean, I don't want anyone to sort of leave this going, oh, be really hard on yourself, you know, set your bar so high that you'll never reach it. But the accountability, and I remember learning with um, a woman that I had supervision with, and she asked me this question and it, oh, my God, it shocked me to my core. Mm. She said, would you see yourself as a clinician? Mm. And I remember sitting there going, oh, wow, that's huge. And like I asked myself last night, I always ask myself, will I see myself as a clinician? And that's my barometer so that I maintain my flexibility. Yeah. Was I too stuck in my beliefs? Was I too limiting in how I saw the person? Was I expansive enough? Were my buttons pushed? Do I need to speak to someone yeah. about my buttons that were pushed? You know, like all that sort of stuff. And that's not the things that you're taught in college. What you're taught in college, I think, is how to learn. Yes. And it does it beautifully. And as long as you realise that all you're going to get from college is how to learn and you're going to get a system to fall back on as you unravel and unpack, then I think you're winning. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's just so much more to learning than just the theoretical. You have to be in front of somebody, whether it's online or face-to-face. -face. And when you're treating somebody, it's like looking into your own soul when you look into their eyes. I mean, you it's 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 very mirroring. And, and if you have stuff going on, that can really come up. And I think what you mentioned before by actually 
you know, feeling those things and addressing them is really important to your growth as a practitioner. And sometimes the Mm. tendency is to squash that down because it's uncomfortable. But Mm. I think it's really important for practitioners to be aware that when you're sitting with some discomfort, when you're in front of a patient, there's always something underneath it. It's funny, I I often um, have this conversation with people that I'll supervise or colleagues and stuff, you know, are you comfortable to show your emotion with your patient? Mm. You know, and so if you think about like the area that you and I work in predominantly in fertility and things, Mm. I know you do a lot more paediatrics than I would do, and you think about the journey that people will go on in that fertility space. Mm. And if you're not willing to show your emotion and your vulnerability, I mean, to a point, like you're not going to sit there and sob your eyes out (laughs) because it's their consult. But, you know, if they've had a loss and you don't show that it touches you and you don't have enough of your own work that you've done to be able to connect to them in that space, what are we giving them? We're just giving them judgment and protocol. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look, I cannot Mm. tell you how many parents I have cried with over the years when I work in peds because as a mum myself, it deeply touches me and that's why I'm so driven to really work hard in this space of peds because if you can, you know, really connect with the family, you can really change that whole entire family's life. But, you know, Mm. the, the tragedy and the challenges in clinical practice for working with these patients, it's so tricky, but to be human with them in that moment Mm. and to hold space for them in that moment is such a healing tool in and of itself. Mm. And we're not really taught that. Mm. And I don't think that we should expect our qualifications to teach us that. And I think that's what makes or breaks clinicians, whether or not they're willing to do their own work in tandem to their growth as a clinician. Because I think the clinicians that expect to have a successful practice that don't do their own work, that aren't willing to look at their own things that come up, that aren't willing to have supervision, that aren't willing to be accountable and to look at, okay, I've got a deficit in that area and be honest and humble about that, be it emotional or intellectual or whatever it might be. Mm. I think that's what makes or breaks clinicians. Yeah. And, and that vulnerability to be able to do that is yeah. is important. I like what you said before. I really like that you said you don't like closed doors. So the way yeah. I've always sort of thought about that is that when opportunities come my way, my, th- my thing is, Emma, just say yes. You'll work out the how later. But if your gut mm. feeling is an instant yes, don't think about it so much in your head. Just say yes and then you can do everything later to make it actually play out. Mm. I think we, we have to take those opportunities, even if they're scary, and run with them. Yeah, I'd agree with them. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I mean... Thinking about things, do you ever wish that you'd chosen medicine first? It would have been a different path for you, um, but do you think that would have been better for you? I think if I'd have chosen medicine, what it would have meant is that I would have kept out of school for year 12. I wouldn't have had anything that would have helped me feel as though I was moving forward. Mm. Hopefully, at the end of year 12, I then would have been well enough to either repeat year 12 at school, go to TAFE, do whatever. And I remember looking at this as a decision as a 17-year-old and I think I would have stayed, I would have entered medicine in a much more closed way and I don't think I would have had my own healing journey 
unravel in the same way. I would have just maintained a construct and tried to adapt and push as opposed to discover more flexibility and more growth. Mm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah, it really does make sense. I mean, we're all very grateful that you chose the path that you chose. (laughs) Yeah, but I, I still don't even know that I would have been able to do it. I don't know that I would have had the stamina. I don't know that I would have had the health stamina or mental fitness to be able to do um, medicine at that point and you know I I often you know I think back to 17 sitting in naturopathy you know I I think I was able to from a health perspective I was able to do two subjects a semester Mm. and it was such an achievement as well like and being around adults because really in naturopathy it was all adults back then Mm. you know only a handful of people my age and it was there was so much growth in such a positive way that I can't imagine what medicine would have done for me. And then I flip it and I look at it and I go, okay, so I did naturopathy, I did the bachelor. And then when I was at that, you know, choice point of doing the masters, it was a no brainer. It was a door like you. Mm. I looked at it and I went, oh yeah, absolutely. No brainer. (laughs) But then the PhD was different for me because the PhD was, do I do medicine or do I do PhD and have kids? I mean, who in their right mind goes, I'll do PhD and have kids is another story, but let's leave that alone for a That's moment. very brave. Um, uh, naive. <laughs> I <don't Ignorant>. know. <laughs> um, but I remember going, no, kids is now, so it's PhD, and then I can look at medicine later. But I was very close to doing medicine at that point. And how old were you at that point? 33? Yeah, yes. So for a woman, that is a pivotal age where you know, you're Isn't making it? decisions that really are going to shape the way that your life is going to be. You know, that that pivotal, do I have children now? Uh, mm. Do I not? Do I want more than one child? Well, if that's the case, then, oh, time is ticking. So I can completely mm. understand that, that choice. Um, mm. But how has that PhD process been for you? And and the reason why I, I really do want to talk about your PhD is because I'm on the advisory board for the National Centre for Naturopathic Medicine up in Lismore. And one of the things that I really want to highlight is that doing PhDs is possible. And I think you're a great example of that because obviously it, it will not have been easy for you juggling at the same time. Look, PhDs are definitely possible. I do look back, and actually I think I was 31 when I was making the decision to do the PhD, and then I think I started at 32, 33. Mm. Um, I haven't finished it. That's something to be really transparent about. Like I'm in my literally my last semester, which I have delayed because of all this COVID stuff and homeschooling. Mm. Um, I've had like the amount of (laughs) – I joke about it with my supervisors that it's a life PhD. (laughs) I've literally basically done two because my first one fell apart because – my primary supervisor um, was basically um, told to leave the university. It was a whole kerfuffle and mm. I had to change universities and I had to change topics because like, anything you can imagine that could happen in the middle of a PhD has mm. happened. But, oh, my God, what a journey, and I wouldn't give it up for a second. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and I remember sitting at the point where I was like, I really want to do a PhD going, and I was, you know, I was given offers to do PhDs in naturopathy Right. Um, or combinations of naturopathy and medicine and stuff like that. And, you know, I was speaking to various people and, and people would contact me going, I hear you want to do a PhD. Do you want to do one with us? And I was like, are you joking? Um, and I remember making a very intentional, conscious decision to go, no, I'm going to stick with faculty of medicine mm-hmm. because there are more doors 
and I'm going to stick with faculty of medicine because it will be harder. We can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, but and I'm going to learn more. For me, it's always about the learning. I was like, yeah, I could do a PhD on Chase Street. That would be interesting. Mm. But I was like, what will I learn from this that I wouldn't be able to just do anyway on my own? It sounds to me like some of your decisions are organic. You know, they just sort of happen. And others you take great thought about and and really think about what is going to, as a result of this one decision, what else is going to happen. Um, So there's this combination of, you know, real sort of strategic thinking as well as intuition. Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. For me, every decision is how many doors will open from that one decision. Yeah. And the PhD in the Faculty of Medicine, God, the amount of doors that have opened for me, it's astounding. Um, but doors of knowledge, doors mm-hmm. of different ways of thinking, doors of understanding naturopathy in a different way, understanding science in a different way, understanding the body, connecting to minds that are just spectacular. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be inspired by people's intellect and their expansive thought patterns and be able to both grow myself Mm. but also grow how I understood naturopathy. You know, and I look at how I've changed with how I treat, how I lecture with naturopathy through the journey of the PhD. Mm. And, I mean, anyone that did a course with me 10 years ago versus now would see the difference in it and how the the confidence in the science and the understanding of the science is so much richer for Mm. obvious reasons. But then I think the naturopathy is more anchored there's more truth to it because it has a bigger construct. It's less of the take chase tree when you wake up because we think it affects melatonin levels. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, simplistic. Like there's real – what I wanted was to really create a system because that made me feel comfortable with how I was describing things. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, it does make sense. It, it, it does. I'm curious about, you know, why you chose the topic that you did. Like how did you narrow it down? So there was me with, I remember this one patient and she's sitting with me and it's a nurse. I'm 99% sure she's 40 years of age and she hands over her AMH result Hmm. and I think it was 0.2. And I remember looking at it going, I don't know how to help you. Hmm. Killed me, absolutely killed me because the last thing I want to do for a person is not be able to find them a door so that they can move forward. Yeah. And I remember looking at it going, I don't know that I trust this test. I don't know what I think about this test. So I joke about it in the context that, you know, the first PhD was just on AMH and then we evolved it because that was the first PhD. It was when AMH was a relatively new test. You know, we didn't understand that there were stability issues that influenced it. We didn't understand it. Mm. And I was like, I have to be able to look at this and understand the limitations of it because people are making dramatic life decisions. Yeah. So, of course, I went out and tested my own AMH, which came back terrible, I might mm. add. Okay. Um, and then, of course, conceived my son in the first month, so we know that that was fairly invalid. <laughs> but, it, you know, I had to look at it on a felt sense and really understand it and go, no, there's more research here. Um, but then I evolved the topic when the first um, uh, project fell apart mm. And wanted to really understand ovarian biomarkers in a different way because A, AMH had had a lot more research in the three years and so we understood it a little bit more. But, you know, for me everything is about understanding fertility to 
you know, like I can look at it through a spiritual lens and go, yeah, of course, a woman at 56 could theoretically conceive. Mm. But then I look at it through a medical lens and go, no, these are the limitations and the parameters. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, just being, working with women myself, they do make momentous decisions based on this data that they're receiving. Mm. And the emotional roller coaster that goes along with that is is horrendous. It's traumatic and it, and it really is so impactful. And so, you know, gaining more understanding around these ovarian markers and AMH, you know, where do you think that's going to lead us clinically? I mean, I know your PhD isn't isn't quite finished yet, but you know, how do you think just it might? Final write up. <laughs> done. I'm just in final write up. Okay. Um, so you know, like I've got all the data. I understand what we're looking at. I understand how it all works, and so it's all organised in that regard. But mm. it's you know where we're going with it is you know we the, the the PhD. So we're testing these biomarkers that are literally, you know, just biomarkers that are secreted by the ovarian fluid. You know, we're, we're back where before we had a test for oestrogen. This is what we're looking at, the research department that I'm in. And it's so beautiful. We're in this really early infancy of science and understanding how do we create an assay, what are the parameters, what does it look like, different cohorts, what does it mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But it will add that piece of information so that in five, ten years' time when the person sits in front of you and goes, I want to make a baby, you'll test their estrogen, their FSH, their AMH, but you'll also test, you know, their BMP15 and their GDF9 and you'll go, right, so this is what we think you'll do in response to an IVF cycle. This is how many eggs we think you have left. And this is the quality of the eggs that you have left because mm. that's the two markers that I'm looking at, which will then give them more scientific information to create I guess, definition of what is and isn't possible within the realm of science. And I put that caveat in there intentionally. <laughs> um, but it's, I think it's important, you know, that, you know, that thing that we straddle as a clinician, you know, the idea of the body can heal itself and the body is capable of so much, but then you have the limitations or the, yeah. the boundaries of science. Um, but I think the more we understand the body, the more we can guide people both through, you know, a knowledge base yeah. and give them confidence in that, but also not misguide them because, you know, part of the motivation for the PhD was I just didn't want people to be misguiding women to either freeze eggs when they're 32 yeah. and it's not necessary or throw themselves in an IVF cycle with donor sperm with no partner and no means to bring up a child yeah. purely because of fear. Yeah, and, and I think as a clinician myself, having more clarity around the situation by using these ovarian biomarkers, could mm. it, it just is so exciting to me that mm. we could have this availability to be able to give our patients more transparency and a little bit more certainty because I know for many of my patients, the anxiety that this situation involves is so huge. Even patients that have never had anxiety before are now suffering from anxiety and I'm also treating for her, her with, you know, nervine herbs and, and that kind of thing. So I, I'm so excited and, and I know it's a few years away, but I think you are really doing some groundbreaking research that clinically we can actually use to do, you know, really change the way these women's experiences go. I hope so. I really hope so. I mean, 
What a privilege. I mean, you know it as well as a clinician mm. in this space. What a privilege to help women, you know, and families, you know, partners and, and to create families for them. But, oh, my God, the emotional challenge of this particular area of work is it's not for the faint-hearted. It's no. really not. No, it's it's definitely not. I mean, you're a mum, talking about families. Yeah. You're a mum of two beautiful boys. They're similar ages to my Sophia. Yours are six and eight. I mean, yeah. how do you go juggling these all these different roles that you have in combination with being, a, you know, a mum? I hope well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I look at it and I go, oh, wow. Um, look, I think, I think it's about making sure that there's intention with everything that we do, you know, and as much as, you know, I love my PhD and ultimately I think it's, it's really for me, you know, and, and how I can contribute or I love working with my patients and I deeply, deeply care about them. My kids are my number one, Mm -hmm. you know, my kids are the reason for everything. They're the reason how and why we we do what we do, but they're our greatest teacher and our most challenging teacher, you know, like, mm. you know, that point as a parent when you look at them and you realise that all of your own issues <laughs> come <laughs> slamming you in the face if the you mirror. can't help them with what they're going through. Yeah. And it's so hard. That's, I mean, there is no greater joy and there is no greater teacher. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think I have known for many years now that Sophia was put on this earth to teach me many wondrous things. Um, that <laughs> uh, Some of them very challenging. But when I think yeah. back to how I, I practised clinically before I had Sophia compared to how I practice now, mm. it is quite different because my lens, my aspect is so profoundly changed by that experience of becoming a mum and everything it entails. Did you Absolutely. find, like, how did that change go for you how, how, clinically? God, it makes us a much more humble person, mm. you know. It makes us more real. It makes us more vulnerable. It makes us more understanding. It's, it, you know, it's the classic, the patient, you know, we're all Zooming at the moment. So, it, you know, the patient the other day this week and, and the baby's crying and she's like, I don't know why he's crying. And I'm like, I'm going to let you sort him out and I'll call you back in half an hour. Don't worry. And you just shuffle your day around because you just know that, as a mother, you're stretched. Yeah. As a father, you're stretched. As a parent, you know, your your bandwidth just stretches in ways you never imagined possible. Yeah. And it makes us better people, you know. And I do think that to work in the fertility space, to work with pregnant women, God, you have a tremendous insight if you've gone through it yourself. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I did treat uh, women's health before having Sophia, but but the depth of my empathy was from day to night once I mm. understood what it was like. I mean, mm. you know, mamas, us mamas, we always have mama guilt. I mean, how do you balance the mama guilt? I mean, I know with Sophia, you know, we're a big fan of like hot chips and, you know, charcoal <laughs> charlies if I can't be bothered cooking. I mean, how do you balance? Because we know as naturopaths and we know so much and sometimes mm. I think ignorance is a little bit of bliss. But how do mm. you balance all the knowledge you have around, you know, all the theoretical and then how does that combine with the practical with your boys? I think it's about obviously taking care of ourselves mm. as parents, as individual women. I think that's really important. You know, I took my boys to Italy before this COVID lockdown stuff for a family wedding and mm. 
we joke about it still that my son had three ice creams in one day. Um, And there is nothing in me that regrets that. There is nothing in me that thinks that that's wrong because we were driving through Tuscany and there were, you know, all the little towns and the gelaterias and what an amazing experience and he remembers it so fondly. Mm. And that's living and that's beautiful shared things that you have with your kids and there's nothing wrong with that. Do I give them McDonald's for dinner? No. Yeah. Would I give them hot chips if I wanted to? Sure. Why yeah. not? But it's it's about them understanding health and me trying to educate them as best as I can with health, mm, yeah. um, but having the balance of it. Yeah, I think that balance is important and also acknowledging that sometimes we just have to drop the mama guilt because we're not superwomen <laughs> and it's oh, okay. Um, one, one question I do have for you, if you think about mm you know, your experience as a mum, what's Mm. been your most challenging moment or your most difficult experience in that space? I think the hardest is, you know, as they keep growing and different things keep happening, when you look at them and you don't have the answer, that's, I think, the hardest. And you just have to push yourself to keep digging to find it. And generally our kids, it's not that they fall apart, but they have their things come up. And because I've got two, you know, they tend to take turns. Yeah. Um, you know, as soon as one is good, the other starts to have something come up. Um, but I do find it particularly hard when you're at your limit and you're tired and you've got your own stuff going on mm. and you've got to somehow navigate to find out what's the answer for what's going on for them. But that, you know, that lioness part of us that pushes us, that will protect them and do anything for them that they need, always prevails but there's always that moment before you find that that fire in you that finds that extra bit of energy that extra fight that I always find that just that point just before I find that hard yeah it's it feels absolutely impossible when you're in that moment and the overwhelm can be so incredibly debilitating I mean for myself I personally I take adaptogenic herbs every day. And I literally Mm. have done that since um, the moment Sophia was born, literally. (laughs) And I find that, you know, occasionally I forget and it's been a week and I haven't had them. And I really feel the difference. You know, what Mm. do you do to support yourself on a day-to-day basis? (laughs) What don't I do? (laughs) Um, I have lots of animals. Uh, They're my spiritual family. Um, So I think that they're a huge part of my my support and my self-care. Mm. I have a number of different clinicians that I'll see, acupuncture, energy work, kinesiology, counsellors, whatever. Um, I take nutrients. I have vitamin infusions. I take homeopathics, herbs, whatever uh, whatever I need at the time, yeah. You know, like at the moment I'm having juice cleansers delivered because it means that I'm eating regularly and I'm having protein shakes with them or whatever. And that's nourishing me in a different way because with lockdown and homeschooling and whatever, I was Mm. finding that I just wasn't eating that well. Yeah. You know, I think it's about identifying what works for us. You know, is it my meditation? Is it exercise? Is it my friends? Like whatever it is that nourishes me at different points, I just need to make sure that I'm flexible to see each situation without judgment and then do it. Yeah, and and all those strategies, you know, the seeing Mm. the kinesi, the acu, you know, your juice cleanse. I think what we have to, you know, visually have is this toolkit where we have lots of different strategies in there and that we're 
dipping in and out of constantly because Mm. as clinicians, when we're holding space for other people, if our cup is half empty, our patient's feel it. And Mm. as a parent, you know, that cup can dip quite easily if we're not being really proactive and working Mm. from that preventative aspect. Mm. Have there been times for you when things have slipped up and and you've just not been doing the level of self-care you need in order to function at the level that you function and things have sort of gone a bit wobbly? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which time would you like to hear about? <laughs> um, <laughs> generally for me, though, the first thing that goes is my sleep. Okay. Um, and it's not that I can't sleep. It's that I reduce sleep because I've just got too much going on. And yeah. then I find myself, you know, when, when I'm answering an email at two in the morning, I'm like, right, here we go again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that's usually when my wheels fall off. And when I don't get enough sleep, I can manage and I can function but I'm definitely not as open or as compassionate as I'd like to be. So everything in the world has a bit of a slant. Yeah. Sleep, it's a cornerstone of health. It's when we heal. I, I can, can't you know, agree with you more. Uh, just yeah. one last question. It's been so brilliant to speak to you today about all of these things. But I wanted to ask, you know, if you were talking to a group of newly qualified naturopaths, there they are and they're all beaming and excited and ready to face the world, what mm. advice would you give them? on building a successful clinical practice? What are some just couple of tips that you think are, are really important? Have mentors and supervisors. Hmm. Have people that you're accountable to. Have people that can help guide you and recognise that they'll change as your practice changes. Know that you can't know everything. So find an area that you're particularly passionate about, an area that comes easily to you, um, an area that you have a natural um, attraction towards. And focus on that because the idea of having a general practice is that you'll be, you know, a jack of all trades, Mm. you know, but you won't necessarily be very good at anything. Um, And remember to bring your humility into the equation. You know, be human. Do your own work. Remember that the quality of your patients, pardon me, the quality of your practice is a reflection of the quality of your patients. Mm. And if you're not meeting your patients' needs and, you, you know, you wouldn't see yourself Um, if you were that particular patient or you're not actually helping them look at the how and the why and fix it. Yeah. And I love that you look through that lens of would I see myself as a practitioner. And I often Mm. say something similar to myself when I'm working with a family. You know, if this was Sophia, what would I want um, Mm. to be done here? And Mm. the other point that you said about mentors and supervisors, I think Mm. that we have so much more room for that in our industry because Mm. I feel like when you work with a mentor or a supervisor, you, what I call compressed time, you learn from them, you shorten your journey so Mm. that you can actually be more efficient in a shorter amount of time. And, And I really would encourage anyone listening today to seek out a mentor or a supervisor or somebody that you can work with in order to mm. become a you know, a better practitioner. Uh, I think that's so important, Leah. Yeah, definitely. And I've had many, many different supervisors and mentors of different disciplines as well. So don't just limit yourself to thinking that they have to be a naturopath. Mm. Um, you know, I've had counsellors, psychologists, uh, homeopaths, uh, integrative doctors. Like I've had so many different types of mentors and supervisors and it's always been a regular part of my journey. 
um, and being just being accountable to someone, mm. knowing that someone's on your team, knowing that someone has wisdom that you can learn, I think is really, it's just really important. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Leah. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Emma. Really enjoyed connecting. And thanks everyone for your company today. Don't forget, you can find the show notes and transcript on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland for FX Medicine. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues. 